The title of this evening's talk <coughs> is <coughs> The Seamless Circle of Generosity. <coughs> and we'll begin uh, with a brief discussion about the paramis, a definition, the list of the ten paramis, and then some further discussion. The paramis are the accumulated forces of purity within the mind and the heart. Every mind moment <clears throat> that's clear, that's free of greed and hatred and delusion, has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. And each one of us in our long evolutionary process has accumulated many of these forces of purity within our mind and heart. One of the roots of the Pali word, a parami, conveys a sense of supreme quality. And in Sanskrit the word is paramita, and it means going towards something. So, going toward supreme quality, going toward perfection. In Theravada, in the Theravada tradition, there are ten paramis to be developed, and I'll offer the ten in a list of, with the Pali word and the English translation. The first is dana, which is generosity. The second is sila, virtue or ethical behavior. The third is nekama, renunciation. Then panya, wisdom. Virya, energy, effort. Kanti, patience. Saka, truthfulness. Aditana, Resolve or determination, metta, loving kindness, and upeka, equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen and mature within us, the accumulation of the qualities of non-greed, which are generosity, renunciation, and patience, the accumulation of the qualities of non-hatred, which are loving-kindness, truthfulness, and virtue, and the accumulation of the qualities of non-delusion, which are wisdom, energy, effort, resolve, and equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen in us, they become very forceful and result in many forms of happiness, forms of contentment and a sense of well-being. In relationship to the most basic worldly sensual pleasures, all the way through to the highest, most refined happiness of the awakened, the 
liberated mind, the liberated heart. The development, growth, and maturation of these perfections, these forces of the mind and heart, help to counter the forces that cause us human beings such great suffering. And as we've explored uh, at times during this retreat, everything occurs, everything happens because of particular causes and conditions coming together. Nothing occurs randomly or accidentally. The practices that lead toward developing these qualities in our life, in our heart, in our mind, they aren't to be undervalued or thought of as not really so important, not the real practice. This aspect of uh, training the mind is really an essential, powerful, and necessary aspect of our practice of moving towards liberation. As these qualities grow, deepen, and get more and more refined, they're incredibly powerful causes of all spiritual accomplishment. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of the mind, the heart of a Buddha. The nature of the paramis can be understood as being of two basic aspects. The first being the paramis related to the purity of conduct, of action our way of being in the world, conduct in its everyday worldly aspects. And these aparamis are generosity, virtue, renunciation, effort, energy in meditation practice, truthfulness, and resolve to practice. The second a basic aspect of the paramis is related to the purity of wisdom, of understanding, insight, both in relationship to everyday worldly life and the wisdom, the understanding, the insight of the very deepest liberating kind, the wisdom of absolute truth, insight into the nature of things. The second aspect of the perfections or paramis include the paramis of panya, wisdom, patience, loving kindness, and equanimity. And of course, all of the paramis are interrelated and so bring each other to light over and over and over again. The development of these forces of purity in the mind are an important aspect of the foundation for the attainment of liberation. The attainment of freedom to whatever degree is in part the perfectly natural natural result of the development of these very strong powers of the purity of mind and heart. We could say that the development, 
the refinement and the eventual attainment of the paramis is the fulfillment of the cause to gain the Dhamma. Our practice itself, in its process, is the, as we've said a number of times, is the practice and the process of purification. The practice, the path of practice that leads one towards liberation. Samatha, concentration, and vipassana, insight, and other specific practices, such as the Brahma-vihara practices, metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upekka, equanimity. All of it falls under the path of purification. And so the development of the paramis organically or naturally occur within the context of these practices, these various practices. In light of soon moving from an intensive retreat setting out into the larger world and considering that in our everyday life right here in this retreat, in this intensive retreat setting and in our everyday life outside of retreat setting, bringing the paramis more into the forefront of one's daily life can be really quite helpful and fruitful. It can be a very potent aspect of our practice. The paramis, of course, are to be practiced and developed for one's own liberation, but also for the benefit of one's family, one's friends, one's community, and for the benefit of the world. One aspect of the blossoming and potential perfection of these qualities of mind and heart is that they're something to work towards, to practice towards benefiting others with no self-interest. The mind, the heart, liberated from all self-centered concern. So, meaning no greed, no hatred, no delusion. Which, of course, without a doubt, is a great benefit to everyone. Oneself very much included. The word parami used in relationship to a particular person or particular persons refers to one who does wholesome deeds with a very pure and genuine motivation to help others and to help themselves, as in practicing the Dhamma to gain liberation. And we move towards this little by little through our practice. As we practice the Dhamma to gain liberation, it's quite okay and actually necessary to have self-interest, meaning a wholesome self-interest. In pursuing the Dhamma in this way, 
as I think everyone here understands, there is no harm done in relationship to others. Traditionally, the practice, development, and the gaining of the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble person. This evening we'll look deeply into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of the heart, of the mind. And uh, beginning with a story. A number of years ago now, when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society, there were times when I would go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda, the Cambodian Peace Pagoda Temple, which isn't uh, very far from IMS, to pay a visit to my friend, Venerable Mahagosananda. And some of you may know of him. Some of you may even have met him at some point. His name translates as Maha, which means great, and Gosananda, sound of bliss. Maha, as he was uh, quite fondly called by most people who knew him, um, was from Cambodia. And he's considered the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace uh, that he led through the Cambodian countryside and the villages and the refugee camps during and just after the Vietnam War. Mahagaya died some years ago at approximately 94 years old. Nobody quite knew what his actual age was. He'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt like one of the purest and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, really so rare. A being with a Un, with a truly unfettered mind and a pure heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and joy of teaching a three-day retreat with him in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, a very deep and sweet connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken into his quarters to say hello. And we didn't really know each other very well, and we hadn't seen each other for over a year. So I didn't know if he would remember me. Being such an old man, there were uh, a number of things that he didn't remember. So I recalled to him the last time we had met, and I asked him if he remembered me. And his response was this. He said, oh, yes. I remember your nose. (laughs) Every time I say it, I laugh. And at that time when he said it, I burst out laughing. And I said, well, it must be quite a nose. And he very directly and very sweetly responded, it's a good nose. (laughs) 
during a, a three-month retreat that I was teaching at the Insight Meditation Society, uh, not long after that Colorado retreat that I uh, taught with Venerable Gosananda, I visited. I went to visit him uh, at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda during the three-month retreat. I felt like I was going to see my Dhamma grandfather, who uh, used to call me Mom. And I'd always wondered about it. And so at one point I asked him why he called me Mom, when in fact he was so much older than I was. And he responded saying, we have all been each other's mothers at some point, and so you're Mom. So that day when I went to visit him, Mom and Grandfather sat and drank tea and laughed a bit and talked a little bit about the history of his life talked about the three-month retreat that I was uh, teaching and how everyone was so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked Buddha Dhamma, which was Venerable's most favorite topic. Being with Venerable Mahagosananda was always a, a most precious gift that he opened and... Uh, that opened and lightened the heart, lightened the mind. A gift he so selflessly offered through his being, or maybe more accurately, a gift he offered in just simply being. I really found it quite amazing and quite surprising when I was with him and afterwards. My heart felt like it filled up my whole body my whole being, and then on outward. And it was an experience that would always continue on quite some time beyond our time together. That day, when I left the Cambodian temple, to my total surprise, the uh, two monks and one of the nuns that lived there with Maha were filling the back seat of my car with large bags of Thai rice and tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar for me to take back to the three-month yogis. They said they wanted to offer gifts of support because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. So as I've already mentioned this evening, we're exploring generosity. This quality holding a a special place and opportunity for all of us in our formal practice and in our life as our practice. And particularly now, as uh, you'll soon be taking your practice out of the intensive retreat setting and into the world of your daily life. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity occurred over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. It's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that we're sitting here together this evening. And so moving from a very recent story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda 
to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend, a a tale that displays a number of paramis, in particular generosity, along with virtue, renunciation, wisdom, effort, energy, and resolve. And this particular telling of this ancient legend is adapted from the tale as told by the storyteller, a Buddhist storyteller, Rafe Martin. It's said that many Mahakalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to the small village of Amravati in India and offer an evening of public talks revealing the Dhamma. The villagers were very excited and felt deeply honored. So to show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara, they decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk on through the village and then cover it with fine cloth. In the forest just outside of Amaravati lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness and physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and much virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later life was to become the future Buddha, our Buddha, Gautama Buddha. Sumedha's parents, wealthy Brahmins, had uh, died just a few years before, leaving him with seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It's said that young Sumedha thought, my family has amassed much wealth, yet neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving the world. What's the point of amassing more? One day I too will die. And as there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I just remain idle? No. I will leave this sheltered life and become an ascetic and find the way. So it's said that he announced his intention to the king and gave all of his money to the poor and entered into the forest life of a hermit, eating wild fruit and wearing clothes of bark and letting his hair grow long and matted. He practiced energetically, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. Within a short time, he gained a profound insight into the true nature of things and bore a very bright wisdom which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of Dipankara Buddha's visit to the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and all of the activity in town. It's said that seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha replied the workman, Don't you know the Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village? While Sumedha's heart leapt with joy, a Buddha, he thought, 
Rare is it even to hear the word Buddha. Rare beyond all comprehending is it to meet such a fully realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch and offered to help the workmen with the road. And he picked a particularly swampy patch of low ground to fill. He worked with his heart and mind filled with light and joy, repeating to himself over and over again, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish his task, he heard exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air. The Buddha Dapankara was approaching. It's said that Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending out from the Buddha Dapankara in a great soft golden glow surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dapankara in honor of all that he is. So Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft wet ground and he lay down on top of it, loosening and spreading his very long matted hair. He made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dapankara to walk on over the mud. Then he thought, like the Buddha Dapankara, I want to help all beings. I'm determined. Despite all the difficulties and all the danger, I'll never turn back. I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dapankara has attained and to benefit all beings. The next moment, the Buddha Dapankara arrived at the spot. And looking down at the hermit Sumedha, he knew, this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He will be successful. And in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he will become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha. And his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, monks, nuns, laywomen, men, and children, the Buddha Dipankara stated, in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He will be a Buddha named Gautama. And when he becomes a young man, he will see the four signs, old age, sickness, death, and a monk. And he will leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions and near death, he will receive a life-saving meal of milk rice. With renewed strength and energy, he will go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his efforts with great diligence, he will attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha. Next moment, then, the hermit Sumedha put his palms together, under, honoring the Buddha Dupankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta. And then continued, the Buddha Dupankara continued on his way through the village. 
accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisattva Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity, filled with joy and strength of purpose. It's said that he rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat, where he remained practicing hard towards his goal. I think most of us usually think of generosity as the practice of offering. But in its fullness, it's really both offering and receiving. A process which clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and deepening of the heart of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed and clinging, stinginess and hoarding and saving. The development and deepening uh, of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and the transformation of the fear and the attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and resistance. Generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we give help, we receive this seamless circle. Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and so deeply practiced and cultivated and manifested compassionate generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways, no matter our culture, our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many years ago, and my four-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area, and with a very big and very bright smile on his face, he thrusts a bunch of bright yellow dandelions at me. And I receive them with delight and heartfelt gratitude. I happen to be in China during my 46th birthday. And the friend I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with the Chinese family, who were good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired my favorite bracelet that I was wearing. And I learned that in China, the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So, in the midst of experiencing some uh, degree of attachment, I decided to give my bracelet to this young woman for my birthday, though actually feeling a bit like a one-handed giver. 
during the consideration of doing this and then, and then finally deciding to do it. Though when the time actually came to really give her the gift, actually give her, directly give, give her the gift, it was with both hands and with an open heart. At that point, it was really, truly a joy. Though in the process of getting there, it was very much a practice of generosity for me. A friend of mine waited uh, some years uh, for all of the conditions to come together to allow her to sit a a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. And finally, all the conditions do come together. But one week before the retreat begins, she calls to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have an inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved teacher off the dashboard of his car and gives it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart just simply opens and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family members. There are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child in the circle. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothing and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry. Another voice, I'm thirsty. Another voice, I'm cold. And the child is then led out of the circle to share food and drink with the hungry and the thirsty and blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. A number of summers ago, forest fires raged in the Los Alamos in Española area here in New Mexico. Hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. And almost immediately there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing, food, all of the ordinary daily life needs as well as offers of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving. That the needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. And of course all of us are very aware of the various hurricanes and earthquakes and floods and tsunamis that have occurred around the world these past few years. 
and the incredible outpouring of generosity offered in so many, by so many, and in so many ways, people to people. And at some point along the way of your life, along the way of your practice, you decided that you wanted to sit this retreat. And all of the conditions come together. And so you both give the gift of this precious time to yourself and receive the fruits of your practice and receive the teachings day by day as your retreat unfolds. And maybe at times during this retreat you're moving ever so slowly and you don't feel pushed or hurried by anyone to speed up. Another gift given and received. Just for a moment, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning holding a large bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks is moving slowly, gracefully, down the road, each of them holding a round begging bowl. And as they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child, standing with your mother or father or older sister or brother and seeing this ritual, seeing this offering each morning, taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice, taking in the joy and genuine happiness quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They simply become a natural part of your life. In some words from the Buddha, if beings knew, as I know, the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their gifts without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and stay there. Even if it was their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there was anyone to receive it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way, making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. And speaking to his Sangha, he said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. We can all take that to heart. Giving and receiving. Generosity. A practice of the heart.
Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder. Very few. The monastic training of the begging bowl isn't easily available in this country, which, at least in part, is the training, the cultivation of renunciation, gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what's offered in support of a way of life. Nor in this Western culture do we regularly engage from the other side in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. And through that process, reap the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, and generous heart. And, to the contrary, this retreat has really been quite special and quite wonderful in this regard with so many meals generously offered as dana. But as it is for the most part, our Western culture encourages us to yearn for, to thirst for, to acquire and accumulate, and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations. Material accumulations and the accumulations of ideas, opinions, and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn, we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and to identify ourselves inwardly through all of our accumulations. To think, feel, and project that this is who we are. In light of this pervasive and very sticky conditioning, I actually think it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing, towards knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things underneath and beyond all of this training, this conditioning of attachment and clinging and identification. And in light of this, a a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. It was written in Colombia in 1978. And she calls it kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. 
Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is you I have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. There isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that teaches and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential unsatisfactoriness and emptiness of accumulation. And I think that as a culture, there's a deep, quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, and joy, and is a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind, the heart, learns to see and to know the ephemeral, the changing nature of all things. In relationship to our everyday world, what we think is ours today certainly may be gone tomorrow or seemingly maybe belong to someone else next week and maybe even in this retreat maybe my spot in the meditation hall, or maybe my seat in the dining room, or my walking path. What in this world really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that really has any hard and fast owners? Everything, everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we really, truly begin to touch this truth, it can be a powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth. The inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is a very powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and the confusion 
that's generated through the condition, through the training of accumulating and then fixing on and identifying with all of the material and mental accumulations. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held onto in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted. It's a gift that can forever be given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so, from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the greatest gift is the act of giving itself. And there's a a short sutta section, I offer a short section of a sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya, the... um, Dvijana, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, sutta, two people sutta is in English. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anattapindika's monastery. Then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, went to the Blessed One. On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him, and after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gautama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. And we have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay our fears. Teach us, Master Gotama. Instruct us, Master Gotama, for our long-term benefit and happiness. And the Buddha said, Indeed, Brahmins, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. And you have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay your fears. This world is on fire with aging, illness, and death. And the Buddha goes on to say, when a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use, not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage one's wealth by giving. What's given is well salvaged. Traditionally, in the <clears throat> in the Buddhist teachings, three kinds of given, giving are spoken of. There's what uh, is called beggarly giving, which is when we give with one hand, so to say, still kind of holding on to what we give. It's still mine. It's how I first began towards giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet. In this kind of giving, we might give the least of what we have. And afterwards, we might even wonder whether we should have given it all. The second kind of giving could be called friendly giving. And we give 
open-handedly with both hands. We share what we have because it feels natural and appropriate to do so. It's a clear giving. And then there's what's called queenly or kingly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if none remains for ourselves. We give instinctively. We give graciously. We know ourselves to only be the temporary caretakers of what has been provided. We know ourselves owning nothing. In this, there's no giving, really. There's just the spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. This is really the true heart of generosity. Shantideva, a century Buddhist monk, said this in relationship to what uh, I've just uh, discussed briefly. Shantideva said, Others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. There's nothing to be held on to in this knowing of the perfectly natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms. Desmond Tutu from South Africa said, Africans believe in something that's difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, putting yourself out on behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. And as you all well know, we don't always live with the purity and completeness of queenly and kingly generosity. This is, at least in part, one of the reasons why we practice. Something that I think is important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to really be honest with ourselves, To honor and respect your capacity of heart at any given point along the way and not pretend anything to yourself or to others by imitating or acting out of some idealized image that you might have of a generous, compassionate, loving person. It's important to recognize, honor, and respect your limits along the way and come from a genuine place of heart. Sometimes we might think we're acting out of generosity, acting out of unconditional kindness and compassion, when in fact we might be acting out of fear of loss or maybe fear of disapproval or fear of some degree of a harsh verbal or physical reaction. Or sometimes we might give from a place of trying to avoid 
dealing directly with a particular person or a particular situation. Giving this way actually perpetuates fear and delusion. It strengthens the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection, which in turn causes suffering in oneself and maybe in the other person as well. And we may be creating what in modern language is called codependency rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not self. That the quality of generosity very naturally springs from. It may be that some of you don't yet have the feeling of a simple okayness about being here, meaning an okayness about being alive in this life just simply because here we are, alive in this life. Without this, we can experience some degree of a pervasive, undifferentiated feeling of disconnection. Maybe a feeling of separateness, an inner lack. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and this simple okayness, this needs to be respected. Otherwise, giving, sharing, and caring may be done with a subtle and often unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the learned, the conditioned feelings of lack, there may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We may give ourself away or lose ourself in an unhealthy way, in what seems like generous support but which may actually be unskillful giving or support of others. And when this happens, we actually feel less whole. We feel more depleted and weaker, which is often accompanied by a lack of awareness and ignorance of the real needs of others, along with a lack of awareness and ignorance of our own needs. It's important to understand respect, and honor in ourselves and in others that the wisdom of deep and true generosity develops and matures gradually. In relationship to this on the scale of work in the world, Thomas Merton wrote, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a counter to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, 
to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. Our inclination to intuitively feel and know our wholeness, our okayness, which translates in part as experiencing our true nature, we could say, on the relative level of life, and includes an intuitive sensing of interconnectedness, and our inclination to feel and manifest the generosity and compassion that naturally springs from this are perfectly natural inclinations. And our inclination to touch and to know the freedom that's naturally inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of all things is also a perfectly natural inclination. And I think that for many of us, at least one or all of these inclinations are some of the deepest reasons why we're drawn to practice. And just briefly looking at the practice of generosity from another perspective. There's a, a practice that a Tibetan teacher told me about, a very a basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, miserly people, people who sometimes identify themselves as being fiercely independent. And this uh, sort of person often has trouble giving even to themselves and may not be able to ask for help or to receive it graciously if it's offered. Receiving help, gifts, praise, even love can be difficult for people like this. They may not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, joy, appreciation, kindness, even if they're physically ill or distressed emotionally. So, The practice that I was told about is to take something very ordinary, something that one might not think of as at all particularly valuable, maybe a potato or a turnip, something like that. And you hold it in one hand, and then you pass it to the other hand. And then you pass it back and forth, from hand to hand to hand, until it gets easy and you don't feel foolish. And then it goes on. There are the higher practices. If one is motivated, if one is inclined to continue this practice of generosity and relinquishment. One moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally, and the giving symbolically develops into uh, letting go, relinquishing, offering everything, 
all of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations and the inner accumulations of habits, preferences, ideas, beliefs, etc. And one is even encouraged to relinquish these secret holdings, whatever those might be. The practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. And at one point, uh, quite a number of years ago, I did this practice. But instead of precious jewels, the offering was a mound of rice, which actually felt uh, quite appropriate. And this is really what we're doing in our practice here, without the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, with the trust that it's just right, just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of really, truly learning to be present, be in the present moment with a kind and an open heart, with a clear, focused, mindful awareness, receiving the present moment just as it is with gratitude, appreciation, humility, and equanimity. With unconditional acceptance, we learn to apply the wise and careful attention of a concentrated mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through the body, to any task we might be engaged in, to the experience of a breath from its birth all the way through to its death. We're learning to really receive life fully, be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is the path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy. We're learning that this very life is our path to liberation and that our liberation is intimately connected to the development of a deep, generosity of heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, he was asked, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all of these people? And maybe quite surprisingly, Gandhi responded, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity are twofold. We give to help and to free others, and we give to help and to free ourselves. This is really the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us. And we begin to know it and to live it quite naturally as who we are. 
I'd like to um, close the talk this evening with another story. About 28 years ago, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year, he would come to the area of Michigan where I was living to teach us. One year I invited him to come and stay in my house, the house that burned down that I mentioned a while ago, uh, a small, very old five-room log home out in the Michigan woods. At that point, just one of my sons and I were living there. So the summer afternoon arrived, uh, 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 came with Wallace's arrival. And he arrived in an old, well-used, pretty small car. It pulled up in our driveway, and Wallace was the first one to get out. And he's quite a big man. He's about six foot three and very big boned. And he looked even bigger with his big cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat on. And then it was like uh, one of those cars in the circus that pulls up in the center ring. And the doors open and people just start pouring out of the car. And you are so amazed and you can't imagine how so many people could fit into such a small car. And as we watched, my son and I, seven people emerged from this little small old car. Wallace's helpers and members of his family. And it turned out there were 11 people living in our house during this 10-day period. And the thought came up, wow, how will we all live and sleep in our tiny little house? Well, the space just seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere. Food arrived. People would drop by in the afternoon to meet and to listen to Wallace as he shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road at the Ecology Center until about 12.30 in the morning. The early, early morning. Then, at 12.30 uh, a.m., it was time for a big dinner (laughs) because they weren't on a precepts. We only did have two meals a day, actually, but not at the same timing we have here. So it was time for a big dinner at 12.30 at night or early morning because no meals were um, uh, allowed to be taken through the afternoon or evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. So during those 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences and habits. How I use the various spaces in my house, my usual schedule, uh, the rhythm of my life, uh, food preferences, and lots of other preferences. Wallace and one of the other members of his family smoked cigarettes continuously uh, in my non-smoking house. People slept, as I mentioned, all over the house. And the day would begin quite late in the morning uh, with, the, uh, with the late uh, night sweat lodge ceremonies. As I said, uh, by the time dinner was ready, it was 1 a.m. And then each afternoon, the room was filled with 15 or 20 people uh, coming, to, coming by to listen to Wallace share his teachings in his very casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food. 
we'd come home from the sweats and there would be bowls of food at the door or left on the kitchen counter and often a friend and I who was part of this whole event uh, would be cooking up something at 12 or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. The last night of this 10-day practice, Wallace and friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. And as we all sat together in a circle, each one of us was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship to our 10 days together. And then they offered my son and I beautiful treasures that they had brought with them in gratitude for our sharing, our space, and our time, and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke, and he said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough abundance. If one shares one's space, time, and energy, it's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. And he said, if one shares from the heart, it's in, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance. When everyone left the next day, in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside, watching them all getting back into the old car. It was kind of like... Uh, watching a movie playing backwards. And then the two of us, my son and I, walked back into the house and stood there in amazement. This seeming great expanse of our house, holding all of the people, all of the activity, all of the energy for all of those days, it seemed to have shrunk when we walked back in. And yet, somehow, internally, we both felt tremendously expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. And ending the talk with yet another Mary Oliver poem. And this one is called Goldenrod. On roadsides, in fall fields, in rumpy bunches, saffron and orange and pale gold, in little towers, soft as mash, sneeze bringers and seed bearers, full of bees and yellow beads and perfect flowerlets and orange butterflies. I don't suppose much notice comes of it except for honey and how it heartens the hard heart with its blank gaze. I don't suppose anything loves it except perhaps the rocky voids filled by its dumb dazzle. For myself, I was just passing by when the wind flared and the blossoms rustled and the glittering pandemonium leaned on me. I was just minding my own business when I found myself on their straw hillsides, citron and butter-colored, and was happy. And why not? Are not the difficult labors of our lives full of dark hours? And what has consciousness come to anyway so far that is better than these light-filled bodies? All day their airy backbones they toss in the wind, 
They bend as though it was natural and godly to bend. They rise in stiff sweetness, in the pure peace of giving one's gold away. And let's sit quietly for a moment or two.